Well, last week we, uh, we started a sermon series on the book of Mark. And uh, for those of you who might be visiting here or, or just getting the feel for what we do, um, this is how it works. We, uh, we pick a book or a passage of scripture and we work our way through it because we want to understand what God's word says. And so we're devoting um, pretty much the rest of this year to the book of Mark to try to understand in this gospel according to Mark, who is Jesus? Uh, don't, don't feel like you've missed anything, though, if this is your first week, if you didn't come last week. Uh, we're starting at the end of the book. Uh, we're starting, last week we started at Palm Sunday and the events of Palm Sunday, what, uh, what Jesus did on Palm Sunday and then Good Friday. Uh, and then today we're picking up the events of, of Easter, starting at the end. And then next week, we're going to start this whole journey through the book of Mark in flashback. We're going to go back to, to the chapter 1, verse 1, and start to see uh, from the beginning, what is this story? Who is Jesus? Uh, what we saw last week, though, and, and what we will see as we study this book, is that Mark is very clear who Jesus is. And see, first of all, Jesus is a king, and secondly, he's a king with a cross. Um, so we saw last week that Jesus was a king, that is, he has ultimate power and authority. He is the king. He is God. He has uh, dominion and rule over all things. He has all power, and yet he's not the sort of king you would expect. He's not the king the disciples expect. When he came... They thought that he would come immediately, conquer all their enemies and all their problems, but what Jesus came to conquer was the ultimate enemy and the ultimate problem of sin. And that's why Jesus had to be a king with a cross, because the only way he could conquer the enemy of sin was by paying the penalty for sin in our place. See, Jesus said in Mark 10:45, which is a verse worth memorizing, you probably will just by default by the amount of times I repeat it during our study of Mark, but Mark 10:45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. He came to offer his life as a ransom. We all had a debt. Our sins earned us the debt of death. That's what we owe God because of our rebellion against him. But Jesus came as a ransom to pay that debt with his life. So that's why he had to be a king who came on a cross. And that's where we ended the story last week. But if we ended the story there permanently, this would just be a tragedy. Because okay. um, he said he came to pay the ransom, right? So he, he came to pay the ransom. If he stayed dead, how would we know that he'd actually paid the ransom? I mean, everybody dies. I could say I'm paying your ransom, and then I die. Well, how do, how do you know? It's a tragedy. Uh, a, a king who says the way to victory is through the cross and resurrection, if that king dies, if he stays dead, he's not much of a king, is he? He's just another failure, like all the other would-be messiahs who got crucified. But the claim that we're going to look at today, the claim that we celebrate on Easter, is the sort of thing that turns that tragedy into a happy ending. The most happy ending that, that you can know. See, the claim we're going to look at today is this, this claim, point number one in your outline, the king is alive. The king's alive. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 16. If you just have a pew Bible in front of you, you can pull that out. It's on page um, 687. Uh, chapter 16 is the last chapter in Mark. I'm just going to read a portion of it uh, where Mark ends the story. Picks up the events on Sunday morning after the crucifixion. Mark 16, starting in verse 1. 
When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man seating on the right, hand, on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, uh, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, we'll stop there. Um, this, this is how Mark ends. Uh, he, he says, the king didn't stay dead. On Sunday morning, three days later, when people went to the tomb to, with the spices for burial, expecting him to be dead, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. And he, and he wasn't there because he had risen from the dead. That's, that's the bold and astonishing claim that Mark makes. It's not just him, though. If you were look at any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they all end the same way. They, the women go to the tomb to try to find the body, but the body's not there. The body's not there because Jesus himself has risen from the dead. In other Gospels, you see more explanations of Jesus appearing to disciples afterwards, for extended periods of time afterwards, showing them he has a real physical body. He can really eat. Um, he can, they can touch him. Uh, they can see him right there. What, what these Gospels are claiming, what the Bible's claiming, it's a, it's a bold claim. I mean, I hope you understand this. Jesus was dead. He was really physically, not, not in a Princess Bride mostly dead sort of way. He, he was all dead. He was completely dead. He was uh, not clinically dead, like brain waves uh, were, were out for 30 minutes or his heart stopped for a few minutes. No, this is completely dead. Roman execution. These guys were good at killing people. They got the job done. He was totally dead. He was in a tomb for three days, and then three days later, he wasn't there because he was alive again. That's, that's the claim that we're making here. That's the claim that the Gospels are making. And if it's true, then it changes everything. And that statement's so important, I put it in bold and italics on your note-taking outline. You might want to put a little star next to it, too, or draw an underline. If it's true, it changes everything. If Jesus was really physically dead and then really physically alive three days later, it changes everything. I want you to flip to another passage, if you can, in your Bibles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got your pew Bibles, that's page 775. 1 Corinthians 15. This was a, a letter, 1 Corinthians was a letter written about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead by the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this point that if the resurrection is true, or, or if it's false, it changes everything. It, it all hinges on whether Jesus really rose from the dead. So 1 Corinthians 15, I'll just walk through this uh, verse by verse and just point out a few things for us. Uh, he starts off in, in chapter 15, verse 1, uh, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right. so first two verses, what he's saying is, um, remember the gospel. Uh, for Paul, the gospel is really important. Uh, I like that guy, I like that. Um, you might have noticed that I talk about the gospel a lot. Well, it's because people like Paul talk about it a lot. And he says, the gospel is really important. He says, first of all, you remember this gospel I preached to you? It was important for your past, this gospel you received, it's important for your present, in which you now stand, 
It's important for your future in which you are saved or are being saved. So the gospel is central to your whole life. This is really important. And so you want to ask, well, what is the gospel, Paul? What is this thing that's so important? Well, he says in the next verse, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of utmost importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then also to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So the, the gospel is all important, past, present, and future. What is the gospel? Well, it's the thing that we talk about a lot. First of all, it's that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the, the ransom thing. We had a debt of sin. Jesus died to pay that debt. But that's not the whole thing, right? That's not the whole gospel. We stop there a lot, and it, it's a good message, right? But if that was all there was, this would be a tragedy. It's not the whole gospel. Paul says he died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. See, the resurrection is important. It's essential because a dead king is not a king. A guy who claimed to be all-powerful and forgiving sins with his death, who said he would rise from the dead the third day, if he doesn't, then he's a con. It's not true. That's the question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And Paul says, yes, he really did, and that makes all the difference. All right, let's, he, he, let's keep on going. He builds this argument. Verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, so some people were saying uh, in Corinth, nobody's going to rise from the dead. What are you talking about? Paul said, well, how can you say that? If you're saying that, then you're saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Verse 13, uh, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here's the key verse, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied most. Verse 17 is the key there. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's for nothing. And your sins have not been forgiven. It all hangs on this. See, when, when Jesus died, he died as a ransom. And he was making a claim he was saying, my death will pay your debt. Now, now imagine, we're, we're not talking about a spiritual debt for a moment, imagine that we're talking about a financial debt. All right, you've got a big debt, $100,000, okay? You've got to pay it. It's your, you're, 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 you're in trouble. You can never pay it, right? You've got this huge debt. Now, a, a fancy-dressed uh, businessman walks up to you. You don't know him, but he, he looks, you know, he looks pretty wealthy. He's got a nice watch. Good cologne, I don't know. Uh, and, he, and he comes up to you and says, I hear you've got a debt. I want to write you a check and pay for that. 
So he just pulls out his checkbook and he writes this check, $100,000. And he hands it to you. Now, I want you to think about this. When should you start rejoicing? Uh, should you start rejoicing as soon as you get that check in your hands? Maybe some of you are a little more optimistic than me, but no, no, you, you shouldn't. You shouldn't start rejoicing until you take that check to the bank and you give it to the teller and the teller says, yes, he's got enough money in that account and I'm transferring that money to your account and your debt is paid. Now, rejoice then. You know, be, be ecstatic because this, this rich guy, I don't, you don't know who he is, but he was good for it. He gave you the money and he was good for it and he paid your debt, right? That's when you should rejoice. If I come up to you on the street and I write you a check for $100,000, you shouldn't rejoice because I'm not good for it. But what the resurrection is telling us, folks, what the resurrection is telling us is that Jesus is good for it. Okay? He made this bold claim. He's like this guy walking and said, I can pay, you've got a debt? I can pay that debt. I can cover it, no problem. Right? Oh, great. That's a great claim. I appreciate that. I'm going to investigate that. I'm going to try to see if that's true. And the resurrection tells us that that was true. The Jesus who, who claimed, I'm going to pay your debt and then I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. He did exactly that. Now, what Paul's saying in verse 17 here is, if he didn't, then you're still in your sins. If he didn't, the check bounced. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then your sins are not forgiven because the claims that he made were bogus. See, if it's true, it changes everything. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning trying to answer that question to satisfy us. How do we know that it's true? It's not just true because I'm telling you. It's true because it's true. So let's investigate. How do we know that Jesus really is alive? And I've got two sets of proofs for us. Uh, these aren't like technical terms or anything, but I've just called them a minor proof and a major proof because one is more uh, persuasive than another. Okay? So uh, the, the minor proof, let's deal with first. How do we know that Jesus is alive? Well, the minor proof that we've got is personal experience. Personal experience. Uh, we didn't sing the song today, but I'm sure many of you know the song that ends, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Okay? That's the sort of thing I'm talking about, personal experience, where you say, I have had an experience personally of God's presence. It was a conversion experience or, it was a, you know, or even just day by day, I feel his presence with me. I know that Jesus lives because he's confirmed it in my personal experience. Okay? Now that's good. That's good as far as it goes. Okay? And, and maybe it used to go farther. But I'm, I just want to tell you, for people my age and in our generation, our culture right now, it doesn't go far enough. Okay, this is why it's a minor proof. Um, because, you know, you can say, I've had a personal experience, and I know that Jesus is alive, uh, and, and that's fine. But, but you need to understand, every other religion says that too. Okay? Um, every, every, other, every other person uh, who who's, who's follows another religion will say, well, I've had a personal experience. In, in regards to my religion, and, I, and I'm convinced that it's true. Um, you know, even, even atheists will say, you ask me how I know God doesn't live, because I've never had any experience of him. Okay? So we can all appeal to our personal experience, and, and in this day and age, if we, uh, if we leave it only at that, then we can't actually uh, persuade anyone. You know, it, it's kind of, uh, it's deceptive, the culture that we're in right now, because we can, we can share testimony with somebody, and we can say, I have had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. And they can sit there and they can affirm you. And they can say, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you've had that experience with Jesus. I'm so excited that's true for you. But I've had a personal experience with Zen Buddhism. And, and, and that works for me. And, and I've got peace. 
and I, just, I feel like it's true, and that's true for me. Another person might chime up and say, you know what, and I've had the personal experience that when I go shopping, I feel better. And they say, and that works for me. You know? and, and all around our culture, this is, this is what people hear when we solely appeal to personal experience. They'll affirm us, and you'll feel really good. It's like, oh, they listen, they affirm me, but they're not really affirming you. They're just saying it's true for you. That's the way our culture understands it when we appeal solely to personal experience. And, and maybe you're sitting here today, and maybe you thought that's all that we were doing here. Uh, maybe you thought that that's all Christianity was. It was just another, um, another uh, relativistic truth claim, among others. And, and maybe you thought that we just get together and we say, we're all people who've had the experience with Jesus. And, and that works for us, and we want to encourage one another, and this helps us have hope and faith. And, but, but, you know, if you've had another experience, that's fine with you. It's fine for you. Um, I, I want you to understand, if you thought that's what this was, that's not what Christianity is. Okay? We're, we're not making a, a, a very um, easy-to-accept and fluffy truth claim saying, you know, this is true for us. Jesus worked for us. He lives in our hearts, and we're happy with that. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. We're saying something empirically, uh, historically, objectively happened. And you've got to deal with that. There was a guy who died and rose from the dead. And if that's true, then it's true for everyone. And everyone has to deal with that. If it's not true, then as Paul says, we are to be pitied most above all people. Because then we're wrong. And we're wasting our lives for a lie. Now, now, now please don't hear that personal experience is bad. Um, it, it's, it's good. It's, it's, a, it's a proof. It's a minor proof. It's a confirming thing, and it also it strengthens our faith. But we can't build everything on it because our hearts are deceptive and wicked. Um, and we certainly can't convince others of our uh, faith through it because they will just affirm us and say, well, yeah, it's true for you, true for me. Okay. So we need something more, and that's why we also have, uh, you know, this is the amazing thing. As Christians, we also have major proof. We have historical evidence that goes beyond simply our personal experience. So uh, on the back side of your outline, we're there now, we have a major proof. We actually have historical evidence. Now, now this might surprise some of you. This might scare some of you. Like, what, what is the preacher doing? Why is he putting our faith in the realm of the historically demonstrable? You know, surely facts are for things like science and you know, force equals mass times acceleration and, you know, and Sokotoa and these sorts of things. There, there's facts and then there's faith and never the two shall meet. You know, Pastor, what are you doing? This is a little scary. Uh, because if we put our faith in the realm of historical evidence, then maybe somebody can come along and they can argue against us and they can prove that it's false, and then what am I supposed to do? I, I feel good right now with Christianity. Don't go messing it up with facts. Okay. But that's my point. It's either true or it's not. Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't. If it's not true, then get out of here. Just stop it. This, this is worthless, what we're doing here. Don't, don't come back next week, if it's not true. I'm confident saying that, because it is true. And I want you all back. Uh, but, but that's the point. Don't, it, this is not a game that we're playing. This is real life. And we need to ask, is it true? So let's examine the historical evidence, just briefly. And of course, this is not going to be exhaustive, but I think it'll be persuasive. Um, see, the resurrection is a historical event. And like any other historical event, we can ask questions about it to try to find out if it happened or not. So that's what I want to do uh, today, the rest of our time. And to keep us honest, I want to do it alongside of another question. So, so let's, another historical question that we can ask. Just like, well, how would we try to answer that question? And if we took the same 
path that would help us to know for being honest with examining the resurrection. So the question I want to ask today is, how do you know that my wife and I got married? Okay, how do you know? It's a historical event. Ten years ago. That's ten years ago. It's a rhetorical question, Steve. I'll get to you. Uh, it happened ten years ago. Uh, some of you were there, some of you weren't. How do you know that we're married? Uh, so that's, that's, the, that's the sort of question, that's the question that's going to help us to figure out how can we investigate it. Uh, the first question that you'd ask with a historical question is, well, what is the simplest explanation of the facts? What's the simplest explanation? So you look at Jen and me, uh, you assume at one point we weren't married, now we act like we're married, now we claim that we're married, we've got this family, other people say that we're married. Uh, what would be the simplest explanation? We're married. It's the simplest explanation. I'm pretty sure up to this point, none of you have ever questioned that. Uh, no one's ever come up to me and asked for proof of my marriage. Um, you just accept that. And those are so the facts lead us to a, a conclusion that the simplest explanation is, well, we're married. Now, if we examine the facts of the, of the first century and what happened before and after the resurrection, it leads us to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, so I've got three facts for you. The first fact is that many Jews changed their beliefs. Okay. Many Jews changed their beliefs. So before Jesus' alleged resurrection, uh, nobody, nobody thought that a single person, let alone the Messiah, would rise from the dead in the middle of history by himself. Uh, see, the expectations uh, were in two major camps. One group thought that there would not be any resurrection. So this is Jewish belief. One group thought there would be no resurrection. So Sadducees, people like that, said this life is all there is. Another group, the Pharisees and their folk, said, well, there will be a resurrection of everybody at the end of time when God returns to judge the world. Those are the two options, no resurrection or everybody all at once. Nobody thought that a single person in the middle of time would rise from the dead. And along with that, nobody thought that the Messiah would die. Right. So that's what everybody thought before Jesus. Now, after Jesus thousands upon thousands of Jews changed their beliefs to something that they'd never before considered and they started proclaiming it to everyone that there was one person, in fact, who rose from the dead in the middle of time as the first fruits of our resurrection, and that's the Messiah, who died and rose from the dead. So there's this massive change in belief. Nobody expected this, and now all of a sudden everybody's holding this other view. The simplest explanation for why that would happen is that someone actually did rise from the dead and they had to deal with that fact. Right, so that's one part. Another fact, the disciples changed their behavior. The disciples before Jesus' alleged resurrection were pretty scared. And I don't want to knock them because I'm pretty sure I'd act just like they did. Um, but when Jesus got arrested and crucified, they were all too scared to hang around. They ran away. Peter denied Christ uh, to, to like a, a little girl in a courtyard uh, asking him you know, if he knew Jesus. He was so afraid that he couldn't even acknowledge that he knew Jesus. They were all afraid, and they all expected uh, a king who would rule, and so when it didn't turn out that way, they ran away because they thought, this is, this is over, this is a failure. But then after Jesus' alleged resurrection, these same disciples who were so afraid to be seen uh, you know, with him or associated with his name, now boldly proclaim that he died and rose from the dead to the leaders, the Jewish leaders that they were so afraid to be seen with before, and they proclaim this message until they die, many of them violently uh, killed because they're proclaiming this message. So a massive change happened. They were afraid, and then sometime down the road, they were bold, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. The simplest explanation 
is that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, and then the third fact is that opponents change their opinions. So uh, James, Jesus' brother, for example, Jesus' family did not like what he was doing. They were not followers of him. They thought he was crazy. They were opposed to him. James is one of those. After Jesus' alleged resurrection, James became a pillar in the church. He became one of those guys with Peter who was standing up and saying, he rose from the dead. I follow him. I worship him as God. Paul is another one. He was formerly known as Saul. Uh, He was an avid persecutor of the church. He devoted his life to destroying the church because he was convinced that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. But then something happened and he became the strongest uh, proponent of the church the strongest uh, arguer for the church, and a missionary telling everyone and also suffering and dying for this message that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? So the simplest explanation, the working hypothesis, maybe Jesus really did rise from the dead. Right, that's the first question. The second question then, so you've got an explanation, well, does the evidence that we have support this explanation? So, back to my marriage. Uh, you know, you think we got married? Great. Where would you go to look for evidence? Okay, now it's your turn, Steve. You would look to eyewitnesses. Steve and Aaron were at our wedding. My parents are here. They were at our wedding. You could ask them, interrogate them, say, did Jan, Dan and Jen really get married? Okay. Well, we can do the same thing with the resurrection. Now, we can't go up and talk to someone who was there because it was a long time ago, but their testimony was written down. And those are the books they have re- uh, collected and recorded in the New Testament. And so the things like we read today at the end of Mark, that's an eyewitness testimony. The women went to the tomb. They saw it. They told Mark about it. He wrote it down. It's eyewitness testimony. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, he appeared to Peter and the twelve and to me. This is eyewitness testimony. It's written down. And so you've got eyewitnesses that that, uh, affirm this hypothesis that we've got. Maybe Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, with our marriage, you could, if you don't trust the eyewitnesses, you could go and try to find some other evidence. You could go try to look up our marriage license. You could ask to see photographs. I could present to you a, uh, a bulletin from our wedding. And all these things would uh, corroborate the testimony of the eyewitnesses. They would say, yeah, it's what they said. It happened. And with the resurrection, one of the, the main other pieces of evidence that we can point to is the fact of the empty tomb. You know, the disciples all said, Jesus rose from the dead, the tomb was empty. All the eyewitnesses say the tomb is empty. Okay? This would have been the easiest claim in the world to disprove. All this stuff is happening in Jerusalem. The leaders are right there in Jerusalem who are opposed to the disciples. The disciples are saying, Jesus rose from the dead, the tomb is empty. All the leaders had to do to prove them wrong, to squash this movement at the beginning, was to go to the tomb, pull out the body, and say, he's right here, guys. He's right here. They're lying. It's not true. But they didn't do that. And that tells us that the tomb actually was empty. I mean, if, if, it was, if the body was there, the leaders would have been on it in a heartbeat. They would have pointed it to the body, said, it's right here, story over. But they didn't, which tells us that the tomb was empty. Now, the tomb being empty by itself doesn't prove the case, but it affirms it. It's like the, the, the bulletin for my wedding. You know, It doesn't prove anything by itself, but it matches up with the facts that everybody else is saying and says, okay, maybe this evidence is reliable. All right, moving on. And I hope you guys like legal dramas because it's sort of like that. You know, we're Perry Mason or whatever, Law and Order. Dun, dun. All right, so the next one, number three. So we, we, we've gotten our explanation. Uh, we've examined the evidence to say, does it support the explanation? And now we need to ask, but can we trust the evidence? Because it might be that Steve and Aaron are big liars. 
It might be that, that we came up with some sort of hoax and we brought them into the church and we said, okay, now we're going to pretend to be married and you need to tell everybody that we're married. And if they ask you, you tell them it happened on September 22nd, 2001, and we'll make up some stories and we'll, you know, and we'll fool everybody into thinking that we're married. So it's okay to interrogate the eyewitnesses and to, to try to ask, are they reliable? Just the fact that somebody says something doesn't make it true. So you can ask them. And it's good to do that for the Bible, too. Now, the, the thing that you can't do, though, is you can't just ignore eyewitnesses completely. You can't just say, well, I don't want to hear what Stephen Aaron or uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lehman have to say, so I'm just going to ignore them. And that's what lots of people do when it comes to the claims of the resurrection. They say, well, they're in the Bible. And, and, and of course, the Bible's going to affirm the resurrection, so we're just going to ignore the Bible, and you need to give me some proof outside of the Bible that the resurrection happened. Um, well, that's like saying, you know, I'm not going to use the wedding photographs you have as evidence of your wedding because they were taken by someone who was there. So clearly they're not reliable because the person who was there thought that you got married and so I'm not going to trust those wedding pictures. I need something else. I need something from somebody who wasn't at the wedding to support the fact that your wedding happened. That's the sort of claims that people make. They say, well, you can't appeal to the Bible because it's written by people who were there. It's written by people who believe in the resurrection. Well, of course they do because it really happened. You can't discard the evidence out of hand. You can't be, if you're a detective who says, well, I'm just not going to listen to these eyewitnesses, you get fired. Right? Your job is to evaluate the eyewitnesses' testimony and see if it's true. And you can do that with the testimony in the Bible. So you can look at these eyewitnesses and, and, and examine their motives and try to figure out, would it be possible that they would be lying? You look at the disciples and you say, what could they have possibly gotten out of this? They were not very good schemers if their plan was to get wealthy off of the lie that Jesus rose from the dead. Because you know what they got? They got crucified. They got beaten. They got killed. You know, they suffered. And yet throughout it all, no one ever recanted. No one ever said, we just made it up. And to the very end, they all proclaimed that Jesus really rose from the dead. You can look at the Apostle Paul. You say, what would cause a guy like that to change his story? You know what this is like? This would be like uh, the, the biggest uh, birther you know, those, those people who, who say that Obama didn't really have a real birth certificate, um, you know, and he's, he's not legitimate to be president. This would be like the biggest birther saying, um, hey, I actually went to Hawaii, I saw the birth certificate, it's legit, give it up, guys. Just, don't, don't, don't pursue this line anymore, he's, he's legitimate, he's a real citizen. Like, you'd listen to somebody like that, right? Because before, before they, were, they had devoted their lives to destroying this story, now all of a sudden they say, I experienced something, I saw something that completely changed my worldview, and now I'm going to be the biggest advocate for it. That's what happened with Paul. What can explain that? That's a reliable witness. He's not making up a story to advance his own cause. Like the other apostles, he was beaten, and he went to his death, proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's not like those are the only witnesses. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul appeals to 500 people who saw Jesus at once, many of whom at the time of the writing of this letter were still alive. He's saying, you know, guys, don't just talk to Stephen Aaron. Don't just talk to my folks. Here's my wedding list. We had 400 people at our wedding. Literally, we had 400 people at our wedding. <laughs> and five flower girls. <laughs> you know, go talk to them. Here's the list. Go look them up. Ask them. If one person's testimony is not enough, ask two people. Ask ten people. They'll all tell you the same thing. Jesus rose from the dead. See, if, if, if all you were trying to figure out is if Jen and I got married, this would be enough for you. Um, you'd say, well, the obvious explanation is that I got married. 
and all the eyewitnesses support that. The eyewitnesses seem to be reliable people. Um, you know, the, the evidence all agrees, yeah, they got married. And, and we did. Uh, you can look up the marriage license too if you want. Uh, you know, but when we talk about the resurrection, all of a sudden our, 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 our dander goes up and we think, well, ugh, I don't know, can we really know? Well, put it to the same test. Uh, what's the simplest explanation of the facts? The simplest explanation is that Jesus really rose from the dead. That's the, the, the most elegant solution that can tell you, that can explain why all these various things happened. He really rose from the dead. You've got eyewitness testimony, the unanimous testimony of the New Testament and the early church. Everybody says he rose from the dead. And when you look at the people who are making those claims, you find that they're very reliable. These are people who, who tell you that it's wrong to lie, and they lay down their lives as examples uh, of, of, of truth-telling. These are the stories that they're saying. They're saying Jesus rose from the dead. So I think you can trust them. All right, so that, that's the end of the, of the legal argument. You put your pencils down right now. Because this is the part where it really matters. You need to answer the question that I asked last week. Do you believe it? Okay. So you, you've got the arguments written down here. You see the evidence. But the important thing is, do you believe it? Does this, does this change your life? See, see, when it comes to other historical questions, it's not that important. Like, I don't really care if Caesar crossed the Rubicon or not. Right? Far less historical evidence that that happened. It's far less. But I don't care. Uh, I don't really care whether man walked on the moon or not. Some people deny that. And, and frankly, I don't even really care if Obama was born in Hawaii or not. That doesn't make lasting eternal significance to me. But this question, this historical question, is of utmost importance. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And the evidence says he did. Which means that we have another question to ask or answer. The same question we asked last week. Jesus is this king with a cross who rose from the dead. The important question is, is he your king? Is he your king who died on your cross? Have you submitted yourself to his lordship? Have you put yourself under his authority? And Look, guys, this, we're talking about Jesus. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. What are you going to do about that? You're either going to follow him with your whole life or you're going to get out of here and you're going to do something else because this is a lie. Those are the options that you have. Just sitting here and, and clinging to some sort of veneer of faith to make yourself feel better, that's not an option. You either give him everything and follow him as your king who really rose from the dead, or you say, this is a lie, I'm going to go get as much money as I can and drink as much alcohol as I can or have the nicest family as I can or you know, do the best uh, humanitarian outreach that I can. Whatever it is that I can do to give myself some significance because this Christianity thing is not working, so those are your options. Either Jesus is your king, or he's nothing. Did he die on your cross? Have you accepted the sacrifice for your sins? You know, Paul says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Even if Christ has been raised, if you haven't put your faith in him, you are still in your sins. So you can still be in your sins, either through Christ not actually paying for them, or through you not accepting it. And so I'm telling you, Christ rose from the dead. He paid for your sins. The question for you right now is, have you accepted it? What better day to say yes than Easter? 
What better day to say yes and to submit yourself to the king who died on your cross and rose from the dead than on Easter? Folks, if, if you've never done this, or maybe if you are at a point in your life where you feel like you have drifted away from the kingship of Jesus and it's time for you to come back, this is the time. This is the time. If you've never done this and you want to talk to somebody about it, there are plenty of people around you who have brought you, or if you've got you know, people that you know that you know know Jesus, talk to them. You can talk to me after the service. We're going to pray right now. And I just want you in this time of prayer to examine your hearts and to ask, is Jesus my king? Have I accepted his sacrifice on the cross for me? Am I living like the resurrection is true? Because it is. Father, you know every heart in this room. Uh, you, you know what's going on in every heart in this room. Father, for those who right now you are calling to acknowledge you as king, I, I pray that you break down any barriers that they have, any, any area of their life that they're holding on to to say, you can be king of everything except this? You say, no, if I, I, I rose from the dead, I'm king over the whole world, I'm king over your whole life, it's all or nothing. But I pray that you would break down those barriers in our hearts to give you everything. Lord, for someone sitting here today who has never accepted your sacrifice on the cross, I pray that you work in their heart right now that they would humble themselves and say, Jesus, I accept it. I accept you as my king who died on my cross. And I want the resurrection life that you promise. And Father, for those of us who've been walking with you for a while, I pray that we would have our faith strengthened by these proofs that you rose from the dead. And that as our faith is strengthened, our obedience would be strengthened as well. That we would be able to lay our lives down as the disciples did, as the apostles did, saying, Jesus rose from the dead. It's true. Would you believe in him? Lord, give us victory in all things as we submit to you as our king who died on our cross and rose from the grave. In your name we pray. Amen.